Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm an interviewer, a poxy interviewer, some say. But let's leave that later. On the other hand, someone once called me the best print interviewer in Ireland. Who? My mother. I'm kidding. Jerry Ryan did during one of his radio shows. And so months later, while we were drinking with a group of people at a party, I felt duty bound to say, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. I nearly called him Judy. How could you tell the Irish public such a blatant lie? What next? Will you be telling us that you killed a lamb? Google Lambo. But Jerry just laughed and said, you are the best in print and I'm the best on telly. But I'd never give you an interview, you bollocks, because you know too much about me. By the way, bollocks is a term of endearment in Ireland. Sometimes. And later, I'll tell you about the time that word, in the plural, prefaced by the word boring, was applied to my first interviewee and to me. But why do some say that as an interviewer I'm poxy? Probably because I get on the people's skins. Stop itching. No, they mean it. More so in the sense that, say, I never studied journalism in an academic setting. And I can't even get right rule numero uno when it comes to interviewing, which is leave the hard questions to last. And when I try to explain that I prefer to lead with an opening salvo, if only because I took my cues from theatre particularly Brecht's alienation technique, they say, I sound pretentious. Pretentious? Moi? But leading with a hard question can backfire. That's why I call this series of podcasts JJ's Greatest Hits and Misses. Into which category does my first clip fit? You decide. Either way, in 1995, I interviewed for radio world-renowned classical conductor and jazz pianist Andre Previn. He'd never performed in Ireland, so I decided to lead with what I thought was a light-hearted question before moving on to the subject I really wanted him to address. I reminded him that back in the 1950s, he recorded with his former wife, Dory Previn, a jazz album called The Leprechauns Are Upon Me. Incidentally, leprechauns, in that sense, were, to Dory Previn, a manifestation of her demons she would later identify in Jungian analysis. Stuff with that uh, that album I referred to Leprechauns. Do you remember that? No, I I, I can't tell you that I really remember it. I certainly remember uh, making uh, helping uh, Dory with it. I didn't write all the songs, and I'm I've always been very proud of the songs we wrote together because she's a remarkable songwriter and lyricist. But specifically that album, no, I don't remember. There is one that's still on the stands, uh, duets with Doris Day and the Andre Crabbe Trio, which has some of those songs like Yes. Do you know that I've done actually done a work within the last forty years, or are you just going back that far? <laughs> I'm starting there just as yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. No, I know that we're going to work right. through to that. So well, I'm, I'm happier with the, the work I did with Dory than with Doris Day. With the Doris Day album. <laughs> yes. And the, uh, the, the question of the songs that she did write, which were specifically addressed to you, she's performed many times in Ireland, like Lemon Heard Ladies and that, which were seen to be publicly attacking you. How do you... No, I'm not going to discuss this. Now? If this is what we're going to do, let's quit right now. Right. Okay. No. Okay. See you after. You must be kidding. Attacking. Off you go, Andre. <laughs> Don't let that door hit you in the ass. Actually, Previn slammed open that door so hard that the handle went through the wall in the hotel room. And though you couldn't hear what he said while doing so, he muttered two words that weren't, duck you. And after I used that clip to close the radio show, one critic did write in his review, Joe, haven't you ever heard of the concept of leaving hard questions until last? I wonder now if he ever heard of the concept of theatre on radio. 
But he obviously believed that interview was a failure on my behalf. Maybe it was. But sometimes capturing an essence can be enough. When I phoned Dora that night, we had become friends a decade earlier, and told her what happened, she said, That sounds like Andre, all right. But let's hear what some might say is another of my greatest misses. Seven years earlier, I'd interviewed Ben Briscoe, Lord Mayor of Dublin, a city I love and in which I live. But he definitely didn't make me feel at home in his home, the Mansion House. Even before I asked one question on my type list, he slapped in front of my face his typed schedule for the day and said, I can't give you an hour. I have to be somewhere by 11. See? It was hard not to. Then less than 20 minutes later, he showed me the door, as they say, though I'd seen it on the way in. What happened? Well, Briscoe finally flipped and fecked me out after I asked him how he managed to make up with Taoiseach Charles Hawhey, having once likened his leadership of Fianna Fáil to the leadership of a fascist dictator. Roll it there, Lord Mayor. Those allegations that I called him, all those names, is just totally untrue. And I didn't. So if they're on file as being said in the dawn, if they're in the Irish they Times... They were said in the dawn. No, and in fact, I don't know which article... Which article in the Irish Times are you referring to? Well, a number of Irish Times reports were written in 1983. I looked through their files yesterday and they were the... Uh, yeah, I can't remember who the Irish Times reporter would have been in the mm. dawn at the time, but they can be verified. Mm. And the quote can Well, they weren't said in the dawn. The well, debate yeah. wasn't in the dawn. Well, wherever the debate was... Yeah, and it wasn't. And the Irish Times weren't present. Well, the quote is on record, so would you then say that the quote is inaccurate or a lie? The quote that I said what... The quote that you likened is uh, that when the moves were made to remove Mr. Hawhey, that he didn't seem to observe the rules of the democratic process and respect the fact that those people who voted him in could also vote him out. That's right. That, 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 that is on, on, uh, from an interview. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not going back over those interviews years later. Now, if, if this is the way the conversation and the, the interview is going to take place, then I suggest that you cancel it. Well, it's basically to give a sense of the person. I mean, you, you, I think we'll have to end the interview at this time. It was basically that this was the public perception of the man in the office, mm. and we were ready to present it to our readers to have you address it. And undo well, it. I'm going to answer you very straight. The public perception of this man in this office is that every election since 1981, I have got in on the first count in excess of the quota. That is the public perception of this man. Thank you very much. And as far as I'm concerned, that ends the interview. Was I pissed off at being evicted? A sore point with we Irish? Sure. But mostly because the Lord Mayor hadn't given me time to finish my chocolate cake, I told the Irish Times when they rang me a half hour later. And that story did bring my name to national attention for the first time, a fact that frankly made me uncomfortable because I wanted interviewees to be centre stage, not me. That said, it didn't damage my reputation when the Irish Times claimed that Hot Press, the magazine for which I did the interview, was, quote, noted for its probing interviews conducted by Joe Jackson. Although they did say that this time perhaps I'd gone too far. Did I? Again, you decide. But here's a funny coda to that story. More recently, Mr Briscoe was interviewed by Roger Gormley for Village Magazine, and while reflecting upon his life in public service, the former Lord Mayor said that he had always gotten on well with journalists, but that if he met me, he'd give me a kick in the bollocks. What is it about Irish men and this seeming obsession with bollockses? All of which leads us to film director Ken Russell. A year later, roughly 20 minutes into this one-hour interview, he made his exit. Spectacularly so. In fact, the interview took place in the relatively genteel setting of the tea rooms of the Shelburne Hotel. And how it ended. 
left many a teacup frozen in midair. Russell's breaking point came after I asked if he agreed that there was a line of misogyny running through his movies. Why, for example, did so many female characters in his films end up beaten, raped or dead? Look, I'm, I want to end this because I don't like your line in questioning. It's unfair. You're just prejudiced as everyone else. You, there's also a line of lyricism, faith, charity in my work. Now, you haven't mentioned any of that and you never will. No, well, you can, sorry, I don't want to know. It's the end. Thank you. It's not a third, it's not a third degree and, you know, I didn't like your approach. It's, it's prejudiced, biased. And the second unfair. half was actually the, the specific okay, focus fine. Prayers. Okay, fine. Thanks. It'd be interesting to so say, do you not want to do the second half? No. Nope. Uh, it's pretty you can't take. Look, I'm not on trial. No, 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 and you're, just... not, you're not a prosecutor. You've got no right to, you know, probe into my private life. I don't, you well, know, how about you? How, how long's your dick, you know? Can't just address the questions raised. And you, you are, you're worse than, you know, I mean, you accuse me of, is it true, is it true, is it true, is it true? What, the, no, 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 no. But then, okay, let's get on to the positive thing. You know, I have brought joy to millions of people through my work on composers. They stop me in the street and say, I remember the Delius. You never put that in your crappy magazine. To, no, you wouldn't. I was going to the market show. Take your crappy book with you. Handbags at dawn, roared two drama queens in full flight. That is what you're thinking, right, bitchy? But actually, all that was sent flying was that copy of Hot Press which Russell threw at me and that hit my face. Was I pissed off by that? Kind of, but it also made me laugh. And I laughed again minutes later when his PA walked over and said, Mr Russell told me to tell you that it would be better if you weren't here when he returns. So, just to wind them both up further, I said, thank you for passing on that message but you can tell Mr. Russell that I'm in no rush to leave. And I stayed for a further half hour taking notes about what had happened. He never returned. But here, I guess I'd best make one thing clear as crystal uh, sherry glasses in that tea room. I hadn't asked Russell how long his penis was, even though he was acting like a total prick. Maybe I should have. It might have added to the velocity of his hissy fit. Then again, maybe Russell was right and I got it wrong. Yet before you say, how did this idiot get any interviews done if they all ended like the last two, here's the thing. Less than 20 such collisions out of roughly 1,400 interviews doesn't exactly warrant me being awarded a dunce's hat as a lousy hack, does it? But let's bring into this gallery of clowns, myself included, the one and only, and let's be grateful for that, Jerry Lee Lewis. This clip actually gives credence to the claim that maybe you should never meet your heroes, lest it lead to disillusionment. But living without illusions, while managing to hold on to dreams, may be the most highly evolved way to live. All I know is that Jerry Lee Lewis never was a hero of mine. But at the time I met the man backstage in the Mean Fiddler venue in 1996, I'd loved his music for nearly 20 years. And by the time I left, all I wanted to do was rushed back to my apartment and have a shower to try wash away the lingering stench of whiskey-drenched spits that had hit my face when he dished at me shit like this. Yeah, this cat here, he's a writer. He, he writes with one of these magazines, you know. And they think they know it all. And they try to get to the bottom of things. He's sitting here talking to Jerry Lee. I've been in this business 40 years. Now, you ain't been in this business, what, 10 years? Well, he ain't even started. 
The thing about it, you don't even know what to write about me, do you? I've listened to you. You're going to write so something that you think you know, don't you? No, I'm going to report what you tell me, that's all. No, you're going to write what you think that's right. I mostly just do interviews where I present what people say to me. Uh-huh. I'm a music lover who went into music journalism. And all I, all I write about you is what, what we're talking about. I'll put it this way. Write it the way you say it. I don't like it. You did. I write what I find. I actually That's like, your problem, I, not mine. I actually like your work. You know, this is not a gig. If you don't give me a good write-up, you did dead me. Okay. Hey, maybe I should have started singing a whole lot of shaking going on. But if even the sound of that exchange brought you down, let me add a coda to that story and it might make you smile. Not long after the interview appeared in print, word for word, I got a postcard from John Prine, whom I'd interviewed twice and who had worked with Lewis. Under my address, he wrote, if he hasn't been killed by the killer. The killer, tellingly, is Jerry Lee's preferred name for himself. Speaking of which, I won't at all mention at this point the two of Lewis's wives who died in mysterious circumstances. But let's slow down the pace of this podcast and hopefully lighten the mood even more by going back to my first interviewee, who left me feeling light as a breeze to cite the title of a song by said subject Leonard Cohn. Then again, one or three things I said to him near the start of the interview could easily have backfired. I'd recently read Richard Ellman's book Yates, The Man in the Masks, and maybe that's what inspired me, even from my first interview, to at first set up Cohn's public image and then subvert it to whatever degree was most accommodating to truth. Here's how I told that tale in my 2016 show, The Joe Jackson Tapes Revisited, Leonard Cohn, which is now one of these podcasts. Okay, let's say you're a lifelong fan of Leonard Cohn, and if you're listening to this show, you just may see yourself as such. So picture the scene. It's March the 1st, 1985, Dublin, Jury's Hotel. You stride down a corridor so excited that you're finally going to meet Cohn himself. You walk into his room, notice that the 50-year-old Canadian is smaller than he looks on stage and impeccably dressed in the kind of pinstriped suit that would make his late father, Nathan, who once owned a clothing store, so proud. He shakes your hand. And within minutes of actually meeting Cohn, you say to him things like, get out the Valium and razor blades. LC is back in town. This is the only man the Samaritans ever took out a contract on. See Leonard expire at the National Stadium. Sensitive, eh? Either way, all of that I did say to Cohn near the start of our first interview. How did he respond? Cohn laughed. And he soon understood that there was method to my seeming madness. And the method in my madness was to try to undo, at least for our readers, that ridiculously reductive view of Leonard as merely a merchant of gloom. This was my way of giving back to one of my heroes something in return for all he or she had given me. But now, let's hear Leonard's response when I read to him those cliched quotes. Well, uh, first of all, I don't come across it too often. But you do get a kind of weary getting tagged this way, yeah. especially when the work really isn't like yeah, that. Right, right. Uh, you know, the tag was just a little bit more accurate or had a little bit more to do with the actual feel of the work, you'd say, okay, that's that's what people have picked up on. But this is something I've got stuck with quite a long time. That's right. Now, somebody said to me there was the aspect that too many people may have come too young to come 
you know, that, that being set up, like I have an ad that was selling you as the kind of poetry and songwriter for, for youth, for troubled and articulate youth, and you were locked. In many people's minds, you were unfortunately locked there, not thinking that, like, as in the concerns of this or the latest albums are so far removed from that. Well, I'm, you know, so it's, I'm it's limiting for really you happy to hear you say that, you know, because I don't get that too often. I mean, that that's my own view of the thing. Yeah. By the way, soon afterwards, when I said, referring to Cohn's public image, if there was some way it could be attacked, and he said, I would love it to be attacked, that became, to me, a kind of clarion call. It also validated my main aim for the interview, to help undo the public perception of Cohn, and made me realise that if I succeeded in doing so, he might even see this as a gift. But let's look a little closer at what I meant earlier when I referred to all he gave me. In fact, what follows is the potted history of maybe even a typical Cone fan. There I was 16, walking home from school, and I saw in the window of a record store a newly released album called The Rock Machine Turns You On. At least they didn't add the word man. So I bought it, brought it home, and lo and behold, track seven and side one was Sisters of Mercy by Leonard Cohn whoever he was. Either way, I was hooked from the start of the song. I loved his hypnotic voice, guitar playing, and then the playground-like sounds that moved from the right channel to the left on my father's hi-fi. But above all else, as a would-be writer, I loved lyric lines like, If your life is a leaf that the seasons tear off and condemn, they will bind you with love that is graceful and green as a stem. I wondered if I would ever meet the kind of girls Cohn was singing about. Then two years later, when I finally bought his first album, The Songs of Leonard Cohn, I was similarly entranced by every track. Soon these songs and those on Songs from a Room and Songs of Love and Hate, plus the book Selected Poems 1956 to 1968, inspired me to write my own poems and songs. One such poem, called Safe, written about my first real girlfriend, as we used to say at the time, was set to music by a friend of mine, and it even sounded like a Cone song, but gone wrong. But let's hear Leonard and I talk about one of those early songs, Bird on a Wire. I'd read that Leonard did not like to be, he said, set up in the firing line by interviewers, and he preferred to hear what his songs meant to listeners. So, tentatively, I told him. The only experience of a listener twisting his or her perspective or, or, or themselves to accommodate a song. For instance, in my, in my own experience, I remember, you, d you don't mind me offering uh, how your songs affected me personally. I don't have to include it in the interview, but just yeah. perhaps to try and, in times of being like paranoia or pain, uh, thinking that I too was tearing everyone who reached out for me. That's what I mean about twisting oneself, maybe to live vicariously through the song or to gain some, to touch on something outside oneself or connect with the singer or whatever. But then for me, it was redeemed when you did a the song, I think it was that song or another live, and you sang perhaps it was the shape of your love or our love uh, twisted me. Yeah. And that gave me an added perspective. I realized that it was the lady, perhaps the way she was grasping at me rather than the fact that I was there to tear. Well, I think it's, it's always, I mean, love is always a dangerous thing when you fall in love with a song or with a writer and he affirms certain feelings you have, there is always that possibility you're gonna get stuck in that feeling. For instance, I, I love the poems of Lorca. I first read them when I was 15, 16, and they, they did touch me so deeply that I did look at a lot of things that way. Yeah. Then you change, and, uh, and maybe you, 
you discard the poet for a while. And then you come back to him, you realize, well, he wasn't really saying that at all. He was saying something else. So, um, I mean, we move in and out of love of, of, uh, of these spirits that touch us. But you didn't grow beyond rock. No, and uh, I, I always, I'm always amused when somebody says they've grown out of Dylan or they've grown out of yeah. Dante. Or <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't just Leonard's songs and poems that became so central to my life at such an impressionable age. I got so lost, as they say, in his book The Favourite Game that I ended up trying to write my own version about that same girlfriend I described to Cone as the lady in question, or whatever I said. I was so embarrassed when I heard myself use that antiquated word, no doubt influenced by Cone's tendency to do so, that I tuned out for a moment or two. But I wasn't as embarrassed as I'm going to be reading what I now see as an over-the-top and over-romantic note I wrote to myself about Cone on October the 14th, 1979. So why read it? Well, because it probably sums up more succinctly what Cohn meant to me at the time, and that ultimately led to me needing to meet and talk with the man. On that date, almost 11 years to the day after I first heard Sisters of Mercy, I bought in the same record store and then played in my bedsit Cohn's latest LP, Recent Songs. It instantly became, and it remains, my favourite Leonard Cohn album. Then later that night, while reading his poetry book, The Spice Box of Earth, I wrote on the back of its front cover the following. I am only now beginning to fully appreciate, as a writer and romantic and man, the poetry of El Cohn. For nine years his songs have been more accessible to me. Yet now I realise that one of the only reasons to go on is to grow ever closer to this poetry book and to the immaculate recent songs. It would be reason enough. Hero, leader, Literary paragon? No. Above all else, teacher, friend. Why the need for a reason to go on? Well, those were not good years for me. In 1977, my childhood hero Elvis died, and nine months later, I found my father dead at the age of only 50 from a fall. More about that later. In the meantime, fast forward to early 1985. A good time for me. Leonard had released his latest LP, Various Positions, which I loved only slightly less than recent songs. And an Irish publisher seemed set to publish my first book about growing up as an Elvis fan. And then I read that Leonard was coming to Dublin to do another gig at the National Stadium, where I'd seen and photographed him in 1972, 1976 and 1979. But this time something told me I had to talk with him. So even though all I'd written for Hot Press was a review of Climate of Hunter by Scott Walker, another of my singer-songwriter heroes, I asked Niall Stokes, the editor of the magazine, to commission me to interview Leonard Cohen. He did. Actually, I would have done it for no fee. Cohen was, as I said in that note, one of my teachers. I loved his song of that name and I quoted it during the interview. And at points on the tape, I sound like a student. Uh, you once claimed that Songs from a Room was unloved, but as more people crack up the album, it be more resonant for many. Uh, are we near that time? Uh, could the same be said of your other albums? It was written at a particularly bad time of your life, apparently. I, I, I felt, whatever the conditions of my own personal life have been, I've always 
I've never had the notion of a disposable song that that this is just tossed off and uh, it's going to be a hit or not a hit or whatever the thing is. I've all maybe it's because I was trained as a young writer and a poet and, uh, with some very diligent fellow writers in Montreal when I was a kid, uh, where the enterprise was taken very seriously. So I've never had this idea of a of disposable art, which had a certain kind of vogue at a certain yeah. time. I, I always meant my stuff to last, as, as long as it deserved to last. But it did say, I think in the interview this week, that songs like Avalanche would carry deeper resonance for more people now than perhaps in the kind of maybe naive optimism of the late 60s, early 70s, had to turn away or did turn away, whereas now they may be not ready to embrace them, but more open to. Well, I, I always wrote, uh, there was always a, a side of me, maybe, I don't know what you could call it, immodest or, or maybe trying to be really truthful. I, I always, there's always some line in all my books saying, you're going to get to this place and you're going to know that I'm not lying to you. And uh, that has come about in, in a number of pieces. Well, that's in the new album, isn't it? I, I didn't come to fool you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Of course, it felt good to me there to be able to quote back at Leonard Cohen that line from Hallelujah, which I'd already learned off by heart. And still in my student mode, later I asked Leonard for advice in terms of a moral crisis that had arisen as a result of the impending publication of my book. An often publication by one Irish publisher, which is a hugely autobiographical, it's a blend of poetry and prose. Every kind of thing. But just that element of actually putting it on the page leaves oneself. I'm just afraid I'd become totally vulnerable to, and this is what I was wondering how. I, I think you should do it. I think you should do it myself. Well, there's also the uh, thing of the family, where surely one has to be responsible for the pain. Like uh, you say, death of a lady's man, names have changed. I mean, but I don't know that that, that would be enough to avoid causing pain or embarrassment or. Whatever, and I, and I wonder, is the work worth that? Well, that's a decision that nobody can make, but it is uh, a consideration that stopped a lot of people from writing. And I think that it may qualify you as a decent man, but it doesn't qualify you as a writer. There's no reason that a writer has to be a decent man. There is an element of ruthlessness, because you've got to write about the things that you know. Well, there seems to be a huge element almost of cannibalism. You know, that, that, that you want yeah, us to... vampirism, cannibalism. Yeah. Have you had that accusation? You obviously would have it with regards to... I, I have. Uh, my family was very hurt when I published the favorite game, which was about growing up in Montreal. Yeah. Was your mother was, was hurt toward it? My mother, my mother was hurt less than my uncles and some other members of my family. That particular part of the conversation reminded me sharply, too sharply, of conversations I used to have with my dad and missed so much since his death. Is there a doctor in the house? Preferably Freudian. Either way, for whatever reasons, I didn't want that conversation with Con to end, and I was really pissed off when his tour manager Jeff arrived to tell me that our hour was nearly over. Worse still, he sat in on the final 15 minutes of the interview, and after it ended, he cut across a comment Cohn was making about the interview that I wish he'd been given time to finish. Okay, uh, Nietzsche said the pupil repays his master badly by remaining always a pupil. 
Oh, your lesson's done. Well, I got thrown out of the monastery. <laughs> okay. You want to leave it at that? Yeah. Good. Great, great interview. Okay. Great interview. One of the most. Uh, it was deep, wasn't it? It was. It was deep, uh, and it was. Uh, I had a sense that it was important. Uh, you know that that the, that, the, that you've really gone into the work, and I appreciate it. It took me a week to research it all, but it wasn't. I, I believe it. I believe it. it is important. It is important for me, apart from just for the magazine, just on a purely personal level. You know, so I th maybe that's what came. Across. No, that's what I'm. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the magazine. Oh, could, could I just ask the same It's like... Maybe you won't be surprised to find that the book I asked Cohn to sign was The Spice Box of Earth. And the page I asked him to sign was the one facing that note from 1979. But before Cohn signed my book, something magical, if not mystical, or even religious happened. He said, Is it Joe? Or is it Joseph? Which do you prefer? My first thought was, only my family calls me by my full Christian name. Even so, I said, alluding to the Stranger song, in which Cohn sings the line, he was just some Joseph looking for a manger, sign it to Joseph. Maybe I am just another, searching for even a temporary manger. I know what you're thinking. Holy Jesus. Right. So how did Cohn respond? Well, he smiled. But it was a smile that seemed to suggest he knew something about me that I had yet to learn. Then he wrote, For Joseph Jackson, it was a pleasure talking to you. With affection, Leonard Cohn, Dublin, March the 1st, 1985. Is it any wonder that after I left Leonard's hotel room, I couldn't feel my feet touch the floor? The ground was gone, as he says in a song, the smoky life. I felt transcendent. My girlfriend, as she approached me in the lobby, said, Joe, are you okay? You look different. Did something go wrong? I replied, wrong? I never felt so right in my life. Then I joked, the LSD Cone gave me was astounding. Of course he hadn't given me LSD, but I didn't need drugs. Just talking with the man had left me flying as high as a kite in a cyclone. And hours later, still flying, I wrote this in my diary. Thus begins my career as an interviewer. I really feel that I have finally found my calling in life and that I must seek out more of my heroes to talk with. Maybe Camus was right when he said in that quote I used in the Elvis book, a man's work is nothing but a slow trek to rediscover through the detours of art those one or two great and simple images in whose presence his heart first opened. Three days later, I was still flying, spiritually, though nervous as hell, as I sat in Niall Stokes' office watching him read the interview. But I reckoned it might be wiser not to tell him that as I transcribed the tape and listened again to Leonard say that he never believed in the notion of disposable art, I realised that once again he was speaking for me. So I decided that even though I may be moving, into what some see as the world of throwaway pop journalism, I must at least try to make my interviews as timeless as, you guessed it, the songs of Leonard Cohen. I can imagine Nas' response if I'd said that. James Bond's ejector button came to mind. 
Following on from that thought, I also decided not to tell Niall that a quote I used in the Climate of Hunter review, namely Tennessee Williams's description of the fugitive kind as those who ask questions that haunt the hearts of people rather than settle for prescribed answers that aren't really answers at all, was now my mission statement as an interviewer. More seriously, maybe, I was thinking, if I hadn't lost my faith in God when Dad died, I would pray right now that Niall likes my interview and asks me to do more. Minutes later, he finally finished reading, looked at me, and then said, This is just two boring bollockses talking about poetry. 60% can go. You should have asked him more about sex and drugs and rock and roll. What did I say to that? Nothing. I couldn't speak. The ground was back and I hit it hard. But then I remembered my mother telling me that she was told when I was born that I might die because I was six weeks premature. But I didn't die. And she always said it was because I was a fighter from the day I was born. And then I seemed to hear Sinatra sing that line I loved the first time I heard it when I was 14 and Dad played for me Sinatra's single, That's Life. Each time I find myself... Flat on my face, I'll pick myself up and get back in the race. So what did I do then? Punch Nile in the face and yell, Yo, Rocky! Those in Elvis fan, I might have been more inclined to yell, Yo, Kid Galahad! No. But I did say, Duck you, Nile. That wasn't the word. And your infantile faith in sex and drugs and rock and roll. That tiresome triad turned me off reading rock magazine interviews when I was 20. So what did you want me to ask Cohn? Tell us about the first time you had sex. Should dope be legalised? Is Clapton God? No way am I going down that hot press road. In fact, I swear to you now, I'm going to fill the pages of your damn magazine with reams of poetry or prose poems written or brought on board by this boring bollocks. Did I really say that? No, I still couldn't speak. But such thoughts were circling inside my skull. And did I succeed in doing what I nearly articulated to Niall? Let me put it this way. Less than a year later, a concept I culled from Leonard Cohn and quoted to the next of my heroes I interviewed, Dory Previn, led to a reply from her, which to me still reads like a prose poem. And yes, from the start of my career, I did try to get interviewees to interact. I had this mad idea that someday... I might be able to move this mix of voices from a magazine page to the pages of a book and or onto a stage. Speaking of which, let's close with a clip that includes another of my heroes, actor, singer, poet Richard Harris, who will be in the next episode. Roughly 20 minutes into our interview, we almost came to blows. Then again, even before it began, I basically told Harris that I didn't want to hear any of his usual colourful lies. And he told me that I sounded pretentious. Pretentious? Moi? Uh, In a recent interview you said truth can be dull, right? Jesus. I saw that in a newspaper. Is this too early for this kind of talk? Maybe. Philosophical things like that. I would rather we aim to present even murky truth in a way which will make it gleam a little rather than go for colourful lies. Is that what I said? No, I'm saying that. Oh. <laughs> does it sound like you? Oh, it sounds very pretentious. Does it? Mm. However, carry on. You do, not I do. 